You're listening to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, March 15th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Some firefighters and forestry experts are not happy about a bill introduced this month by Congressman Doug LaMalfa and Tom McClintock. The two Republicans want the Forest Service to be more aggressive in attacking new fires. Fire experts say the bill flies in the face of forest science and politicizes wildfires. All eyes are on the economy as the Federal Reserve meets this week. Paul Emery gets a preview from economist Gary Zimmerman, and Mark Cuniberti is here with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Governor Gavin Newsom signed emergency legislation yesterday to nullify a court order freezing enrollment at UC Berkeley after it passed unanimously in the state legislature. KQED's Sarah Hosseini reports. The move is intended to moot a judge's decision to cap enrollment at 2020 levels until Cal studies the environmental impact of adding thousands more students than it planned for over the years. Berkeley State Senator Nancy Skinner says the bill would stop enrollment changes from triggering environmental review on their own. So we can say, yes, University of California or CSU or CCC, you better build on more housing. However, we have to tell the communities also, because the housing crisis is all of our making. But it should not be on the backs of students alone. San Francisco Assemblymember Phil Ting backed the legislation while conceding the UC was partly to blame for failing to properly plan for campus growth. So I don't think students should really pay the price for bad bureaucratic decisions and a very poor lawyer. In a statement, the university said it is committed to addressing the student housing crisis. Save Berkeley's Neighborhoods, the group behind the lawsuit that prompted the freeze, says the poorly drafted legislation harms students, 10 percent of whom report experiencing homelessness while at Cal. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Hosseini. A bill introduced in the House by two California Republican congressmen is upsetting some firefighters and forestry experts. To learn more about it, we're joined by KQED science reporter Danielle Venton. Danielle, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Alex. So what is being proposed with this legislation? The two congressmen who represent much of the Sierra, uh, Doug LaMalfa in the north and Tom McClintock in the central Sierra, want the U.S. Forest Service to aggressively attack all fires and put them out within 24 hours of detection. Now, it's a little unclear what they actually want because aggressive attack is already the Forest Service policy. I spoke with Jeremy Bailey at the Nature Conservancy, who's a fire expert. It's a false assumption to think that we're letting fires burn. We need to let fires burn. He went on to say that most forest fires that start naturally are burning at a time of year and in a way where they're doing ecological good. But, he said, they're not allowed to burn. The easy fires all get put out. The Forest Service continues to be extremely successful at suppressing nearly all fires. Over 96% of all ignitions are suppressed essentially immediately. And the, the, the few fires that get away end up causing a majority of the damage. So then what's behind this bill? Well, these representatives were both extremely upset last summer when the Tamarack Fire, which started out tiny and unexpectedly exploded, the Forest Service had not initially attacked it, they said, because there were too many fires elsewhere and that it was too dangerous to send firefighters into this remote area. 
Here's what Bailey said about that. You could politicize a fire that you are not assigning firefighters to, and you could say, well, you're letting that fire burn. The truth is, is that the fire management officer who's making the decision has gone through a decision-making process and documented it. So his point is that this isn't an arbitrary call. This is a calculated decision. The Forest Service doesn't comment on proposed legislation. However, former firefighters have spoken of being concerned about the agency possibly being given fewer tools to manage fires or of firefighters being compelled to take even more risks. Right. And from what I understand, it's already a very risky and stressful job. Absolutely. And what worries me is that McClintock has blamed the idea of good fires on radical environmentalists. In reality, at least in California, it's radical environmentalists who generally oppose prescribed burns and any forest treatment, not the other way around. This bill also dismisses more than half a century of clear forest science. I mean, this is not controversial science. And I worry that this is an effort to create kind of a wedge issue. But our need to change how we live with fire is just too urgent for that. Uh, Say people like Timothy Inglesby, he formed the group Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology. He said that this effort represents a mindset back from the 1930s. We live in a very different world now. Climate-driven wildfire that is really surpassed human ability to control all fires, to prevent all fires, to put them out when they burn. And he said it's time or past time to start working with fire, not just for the good of the land, but also for our own health and safety and for the health and safety of firefighters. Danielle, thank you for being here and for explaining this important issue. Thank you for talking with me, Alex. And the California report did reach out to the offices of both congressmen. They did not respond to a request for comment on the bill. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. Personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Governor Newsom is proposing an Office of Healthcare Affordability to keep healthcare prices in check. The office would order the state's hospitals, doctor's offices, and insurance companies to keep their costs below a certain level. If they didn't, the office could impose a fine. Sutter Health, which operates 24 hospitals in Northern California, has been sued twice over allegations it gouged prices and discouraged patients from using lower-cost services. The healthcare network settled one of the lawsuits for half a billion dollars in 2019, and a federal jury ruled in favor of Sutter in the other last week. The California Hospital Association has voiced concerns that the office wouldn't be able to distinguish between good spending, like for mental health services, from bad spending, like for duplicate records or complex paperwork. 
Workers for California's Division of Juvenile Justice could receive up to $50,000 bonuses to stay on the job while the state works to close its youth prisons. That's according to a story out by Cal Matters. Since the announcement that California planned to close its youth detention facilities, the prisons have experienced worker shortages. The Newsom administration is hoping to keep the facilities staffed through June of 2023. Nearly 800 people worked at the state's youth facilities as of January of this year. If they all qualified for the full bonus, it would cost California an estimated $38 million. And that's the California Report. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, two Nevada County officials, Sheriff Shannon Moon and District Attorney Jesse Wilson, will run unopposed on the June 7th ballot because two people who had filed to run against them do not meet the minimum qualifications to run. Ubinet.com reported today that Matt Beecham, candidate for District Attorney, and Lori Steele, candidate for Sheriff, have been removed from the June ballot. Beecham said in a text message to Ubinet that he had been exploring a run for Nevada County DA, but has decided against it. Beecham said he will continue to serve out his term as district attorney for Calusa County. Beecham's message was in response to a request for comment about his voter registration status in Nevada County, Ubinet reported. According to the Elections Office Candidate Handbook, the minimum qualifications to run for district attorney include being a registered voter in the county. Beecham was not registered to vote in Nevada County at the time of filing, according to the elections office. According to the candidate handbook, any candidate who signs the declaration of candidacy declares that they meet the qualifications for the office they seek. Lori Steele, who had filed to oppose incumbent Sheriff Shannon Moon, sent a written acknowledgment to the elections office that she is not eligible for the office of county sheriff. Ubinet reported that Steele's name will also be removed from the ballot. According to the Union newspaper of Grass Valley, Steele had learned that to qualify to run, she needed to have worked within five years of filing. She said she does not meet that qualification. The state government code list of requirements to run for county sheriff includes a year of full-time salaried law enforcement experience within five years prior to the date of filing. In other election news, Gregory Diaz, the Nevada County Clerk Recorder and Registrar of Voters, stated in an article posted this afternoon on Ubinet that the filing period for several local offices had been extended to 5 p.m. Wednesday. Those offices are U.S. Representative, State Senator, Nevada County Supervisor in District 3, County Assessor, Auditor Controller, and Clerk Recorder. A rally for voting rights will be held at Nevada City's Rood Center on April 4th, according to an announcement from the organization Color Me Human posted today on Ubinet.com. The event, from 3.30 to 5 p.m., will feature individuals representing different segments of the community reading from the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, Beyond Vietnam. According to Color Me Human's announcement, the event will take place at Nevada County's Administration Building to demonstrate support for the County Registrar of Voters, Elections Office staff, and poll workers. The event is being organized by Color Me Human, Creating Communities Beyond Bias, Earth Justice Ministries, the Peace and Justice Center, and the Unitarian Universalist Community of the Mountains. It is part of a local three-month campaign that seeks to encourage voter registration among youth and educate and inspire voters.
Turning to regional weather, this morning's rain and snow showers have moved on and mild dry weather is expected to return. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, patchy fog between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m., otherwise partly cloudy with a low around 40. Wednesday will be sunny with a high near 64 and a low in the mid-40s. Clouds will increase in the evening. In Truckee Tahoe tonight, mostly cloudy with a low of 14 degrees. Wednesday in Truckee Tahoe, partly sunny with a high near 49 and a low of 16. Clouds will increase through the day. This evening in Sacramento and Woodland, patchy fog after 2 a.m., otherwise partly cloudy with a low around 46. Wednesday in Sacramento and Woodland, sunny with a high of 72 and a low of 46. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. This week, the Federal Reserve is meeting to make policy. KVMR's Paul Emery talks to economist Gary Zimmerman about the tricky tightrope the Fed will be walking as it decides about interest rates. What is the Fed's plan to cool inflation and heat up the economy enough to prevent recession? And what hints can the Fed give us about what may lie ahead? This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Once again, there's lots going on in the world and particularly in the world of finance. But for today, let's talk about the Federal Reserve's monetary policy meeting uh, later this week. Well, Paul, as was the case uh, two weeks ago, as you pointed out, there's a great deal of uncertainty in the world right now, in the world economy, uh, ranging from a shooting war in Europe and global financial sanctions to rising global inflation, you know, all as the U.S. economy approaches you know, full employment with, you know, now a 3.8 percent unemployment rate. So, you know, the Fed is looking for a policy that will slow inflation without causing a recession. And that's, you know, a challenge with everything that's going on today. So um, and the Federal Reserve, that's our you know, nation's central bank. Their policymakers will be meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, and they're expected to vote on some important changes in their monetary policy and interest rates that, you know, essentially, I think, will affect the economy and all of us. So, Gary, uh, let me ask, uh, how will we know what the Fed decided at this meeting? Does it have to be a unanimous decision or might there be dissenters? Well, that's an easy question. The Fed uh, decision will be based on a majority vote of the policymaking committee of Federal Reserve governors and the five voting Federal Reserve Bank presidents around from around the country. Um, immediately after the Fed meeting concludes on Wednesday, the Fed will issue a press release describing changes in monetary policy that the committee members voted to implement at the meeting. And there, there can be dissenters. Often there are. Uh, another part of that press release is the Fed policymakers' projections for economic growth for the unemployment rate and and the inflation rate for 2022 and beyond. And I'll be very interested in seeing that to see how the policymakers expect the economy to perform in 2022 and beyond, given all the uncertainty and risks and challenges they're they're facing. Gary, let me ask if you uh, have a sense of how the Fed might change policy or interest rates this week. Yes, Paul, the, the signals that the policymakers and especially Fed Chair Powell have 
made in public comments make it clear they will begin the process of raising interest rates. And it seems likely the first change will be a one quarter percentage point or 25 basis point increase in the overnight federal funds um, interest rate target range. Uh, currently, that is uh, the, the range is zero to a quarter of a percentage point, and I would expect that they will raise that to the one quarter percent to one half percent range. Well, Gary, is the quarter percentage point increase a typical Fed increase or is it especially small or large? Good question, Paula. One quarter percentage point increase has been typical in recent years when the Fed changes the overnight interbank um, interest rate target. You know, still, there have been a lot of discussions about the size of this interest rate move, especially with the spike in inflation. So many analysts and economists think that the given the spike in inflation, the Fed may want to raise the target interest rate by a larger amount, say one half percentage point or, or 50 basis points to signal to the financial markets that the Fed is more serious about starting the process of bringing inf the inflation rate down, um, or at least starting it to move it closer towards the Fed's 2% inflation goal. Didn't the Fed Chair Powell seem to indicate um, a few weeks ago that the Fed needs to begin raising interest rates to fight inflation? Yes, Paul, with the 2021 and now 2022 spike in inflation, the consumer price index for, for all goods and services, for example, um, rose at a 7.9% over the past year. So, you know, given that, we expect to see that the Fed's monetary policy committee is going to have to decide on how much and how fast to raise their short-term interest rate target to begin to bring inflation back under control and eventually back to the Fed's 2% goal. Of course, you know, higher interest rates are a key part of that policy, but they also don't want the higher interest rates to cause a recession. So, Gary, the higher interest rates, they also slow the growth of the economy. Won't that make it harder for the Fed to slow inflation without slowing the economy too fast or too much and causing a recession? That is the million-dollar question for the Fed. Um, the Fed typically lowers interest rates to stimulate the economy, as it did to speed up the recovery from the financial crisis in 2008 and COVID pandemic in 2020. In contrast, you know, higher interest rates are used to slow the economy when it reaches full employment and to lower inflation when it you know, gets significantly above the Fed's inflation goals. Um, still, there are lags between when the Fed takes a policy action and when that hits the economy. So there's certainly uncertainty there between policy actions and movements of the economy. Uh, you know, we have a large and complex economy. Uh, now you've added in all these extraordinary risks and uncertainties created by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the economic and financial sanctions being imposed on Russia. You know, and this creates concern, you know, for the global economy and, and its growth. Um, so, you know, some and economic Economic forecasters have worried that the Fed could slow the economy, you know, just as the slowdown from the Ukraine war and the sanctions hit the U.S. economy, and they worry that that could, you know, slow it down too much and lead to a recession. On the other hand, if if the Fed doesn't slow down things enough, you know, inflation might, you know, continue or or worsen. So it, this is a challenge for Fed policymakers. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. On today's edition of Money Matters, Mark Cuniberti examines the dozens of factors that are contributing to the surging price of fuel. His prediction? 
we've got a serious case of inflation contagion. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. The latest statistics out from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta shows U.S. growth at a meager 0.5%, with the official definition of a recession being two quarters of negative economic growth. The current reading is concerning. The official measurement at quarter end will be published in about three weeks, so we will know more about the beginning of March, but the estimates put out by the Atlanta Fed tends to be fairly accurate. The Bureau of Labor Statistics recently put out a statistic that says that real incomes year-over-year have increased 5.1%, a healthy increase to be sure. The increase, however, doesn't factor in current inflation figures, which is estimated by some to be about 7%, but some analysts stating it's closer to 10%. Whatever the true inflation statistic is, it's the highest in 40 years. Discretionary purchases, things people choose to buy versus what they must buy, will certainly go down. But what about the non-discretionary purchases like gasoline or food? The price of a gallon of gas has risen on average 45% from an average price of $2.76 a gallon to $4 and a penny. That may sound low to us Californians, where I pay close to 6 bucks for a gallon of premium, but the national average is a bit lower, no thanks to a variety of public agencies here in the Golden State. New York also has similar gas prices. The surge in prices may not be over, with some analysts forecasting $7 or higher are in the cards. Just in the last month, gas prices have jumped 17%. The increase is so devastating to consumers and the economy in general, Washington has figuratively started the drill, baby, drill, cat calls throughout the ivory halls. What a difference a war makes. At current prices, Americans are, on the average, going to have to shell out about an extra $2,000 a year to drive to and fro, amplifying the unfortunate. The move away from oil dependence has come just at the very wrong time. With regulatory pressures on oil companies and where they can drill increasing, many oil-producing facilities have shut down. These shutdowns come on top of what was already a global energy shortfall for a variety of reasons, which include the green movement, the COVID shutdowns, labor shortages, and supply problems. With Russia having huge oil reserves and manufacturing facilities which are now off-limits due to the Ukrainian conflict, a perfect storm may be brewing to bring about even more inflation. Keep in mind, much of what is consumed by the world is oil-based. The list of things made from oil or oil derivatives is too long to list here, but the odds are you are using more things made from oil than not. The price of oil skyrocketing at a blistering pace, an inflation contagion about to run rampant all through the manufacturing complexes of the world. The cost of most everything is probably about ready to explode. Can we count on oil companies increasing production to meet the shortages? Hardly. Restarting oil and gas manufacturing is not like turning on a light bulb. It takes months and millions of dollars to bring a previously mothballed refinery or oil-producing complex back online. Even if it could be done, oil companies are hesitant to do so in fear of being shut down again by Washington once the crisis passes. All in all, it's a complete mess and about to get messier. There are those that are saying the U.S. should move even faster towards clean energy, and that may be a valid point. But to make a significant dent in the current supply-demand-pricing problems we see, which are caused by many factors, the truth is right now, we just don't have the time. That's it for today's Money Matters. The opinions expressed here are mine alone and may not represent those of this news media. Its staff members are underwriters and not meant as investment advice. Our 
website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, an all-new edition of Educationally Speaking with your hosts, Scott W. Lay and Kimberly Ewing. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Habitat for Humanity Restore, selling repurposed home improvement and building materials, doors, furniture, appliances, and hard-to-find unusual treasures. Accepting donations, pickup services available. Open Tuesday through Saturday at 9 a.m. Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley, nchabitat.org. And Serino's at Main Street, serving Italian cuisine since 1983. Open Wednesday through Sunday, 11 to 10 p.m. for lunch and dinner. Offering private dining snugs available for customer safety and comfort. Information, serenos at mainstreet.com. Thank you.